teenagers in particular are really searching for who they are and they take their lead from those that are around them and, and the role models that they have. And so, you know, if their father, you know, isn't in their life a lot or they're only sort of seeing, you know, one side of them, like that dynamic worker-provider kind of mode and, and you know, oh, they're, they're busy, that's what you do as, as sort of a dad, that's the view or the vision that they have. And then so the cycle will continue as they grow older. If they're able to sort of see dads having fun or doing stuff with them, gives them more exposure to the different forms of healthy masculinity that are out there and the different ways that men can show up. Um, because teenagers are trying to find their identity. They're trying to find who they are. Hello, and welcome to Parenthood, conversations about life after kids. I'm your host, Leonia Kidanor, and every fortnight I will bring you discussions about the real and raw realities of parenting, life behind the Instagram filter. Join us as we laugh, cry, and bond over the organized chaos that is parenthood. Hi, Joel. Welcome to the podcast. Sorry for all the technical difficulties, but I hope you can hear me now. <laughs> Yeah, I can hear you just fine, and and yeah, I think maybe my internet, you know, doesn't like uploading the video. It's it, it, yeah. it seems to be well, it seems to be going. It's better than ten seconds now. So yeah, exactly. Really excited that we've been able to make this work. Um, for everyone listening, Joel has a twelve-year-old son and um, does a lot of amazing work um, supporting young people and adults through his work at the Man Cave and his own business, um, being human. So super excited to delve into that a little bit further and more specifically your learnings around, you know, the parenting front from your own experiences and the work that you do, you know, liaising with so many adolescents um, and in particular uh, boys. So um, yeah, keen to explore that further with you. Yeah, excited to have the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Let's delve into your fatherhood journey from right at the start. So I want to hear, because we hear a lot about, you know, the first time as a female that you find out you're pregnant and the sensations and all of that. But from from a dad's perspective, talk to me about the first time that you found out you were going to be a dad. Yeah, well, it's it's probably a bit of a drawn out story in some ways. Um, we actually had uh, about a seven year tumultuous journey to to get our son, Luca. Um, and we went through uh, two ectopic pregnancies and uh, a couple of miscarriages and ended up having to go through the IVF process in order uh, to actually get the miracle. So there was many points of the journey along the way. There was lots of uh, false starts, I suppose. If I remember that first time, um, uh, that absolute first time, uh, I remember getting the ultrasound and uh, the the woman in the ultrasound sort of scanning over this period and in this this sort of sort of gap on the screen and and I saw that heartbeat for the first time and it was at that moment that it suddenly became very real for me. It was like I could see it on the screen, I could hear it through the audio thing that was happening, and it was at that moment that I'm like, wow, this is real. And and fatherhood is something I've always like just knew that it was something I wanted to be. I wanted to be a father. And and so uh, it was almost like there was this sense of it, now is the time. And um, and th- and through the journey that we went through, there was obviously lots of uh, heartache, grief, disappointment and um, and stress, really, with, with that whole journey. Yeah. Um, but when the, the pregnancy finally took um, with the IVF after several rounds, it was sort of almost like down to the last one uh, that we had sort of in the bank in a way. And, and it was... Um, 
there's a lot of hope riding on it. There was a lot of hope riding and um, a lot of emotion invested in it. And, um, mm. and when it actually happened, you know, we would, we were just like absolutely joyful, but obviously you petered that a little bit just cause, you know, waiting for the whole, you know, 12 weeks kind of thing. And, and that whole sort of, you know, waiting mm. game, but then we were able to sort of settle mm. into that process. And, um, yeah, so I think that was probably my first sort of for, foray into the idea of, um, what it was going to be like as a father. And I think some of mm. that feeling hasn't hasn't changed, you know, almost 12 years later, it's, it's still like, there's, you know, what's going to be the next hurdle? What's going to be the next challenge? What's going to be the next thing that we're going to have to encounter? Um, and I heard someone talking the other day, sort of saying that every year is the best year. And like, you know, every year there's something new and something Mm -hmm. different and, oh, you know, this age is the best, oh, this age is the best. And I really resonated (laughs) with that idea because like all the way along, it's like, it's almost Mm -hmm. like you can't compare uh, the years, you know, from, from, you know, each one is different and each little milestone is, is such a, a joy mm. to witness and be part of. It's so true, isn't it? In those um, early stages of finding out that you were going to be a dad, did you have expectations around, you know, what that might be like, how your life might change, what role you would then play? What was going through your head? Um, I, th- I think there there was a lot of focus on the pregnancy itself. And I think uh, my wife and I didn't do a lot of planning necessarily. We we knew we wanted to be parents and, and, you know, when we, we got the, the successful sort of pregnancy happening and things, we were really focused on that journey. And it was at the moment of, of his mm-hmm. birth that there was this sudden realization, I think that, wow, this is a big responsibility. When, when I sort of, you know, caught him in my arms, we, we ended up having a home birth and we, we had him in a pool in, in oh, the lounge wow. room downstairs. And, and I got the absolute privilege of being able mm. to catch him as he sort of, you know, came out for the first time. And I remember yeah. his eyes kind of looking up mm. at me through the water and, and just sort of locking with mine. And it was just such a, a brilliant moment that I'll never forget. Um, and I think what went through my mind mm. is, uh, oh my gosh, there's, there's someone now that is dependent upon me. You know, there, there's that, there, there's that real sense of, you know, I've, I've really got to look after this being, you know, and until they're able to look after themselves in some ways. Um, so I think that's what kind of really mm. hit me to begin with, you know, and then, uh, as I sort of, uh, felt my way into the experience as, as he was a newborn and, and, and working our way through it, it was like, something kind of primal came over me and, and it was this sense of um, protector provider. You know, it was something innate that wasn't my usual way of being, um, but it was something that just seemed to come out. Uh, and, and I went into this mode of I've got to look after my family. I've got to provide for my family. And, and it got to that point of, of like thinking that my role in all of this is, is to go out there and get, you know, get the money to bring it home so I can look after them and, um, do whatever I can to sort of provide and protect them um, from everything that's out there in the world, particularly in those early stages. And um, that was sort of the role that I think really adopted me. And it was something that kind of surprised me as well. Uh, I wasn't kind of expecting that. Yeah, that just naturally, given the experience that you're having, you know, new father that comes over you. And I guess to some extent, you know, newborn is so dependent on mama. And, you know, yes, you know, even if they're not breastfed and they're bottle fed yet, that enables the partner to sort of, um, you know, chip in a little bit more. But just generally, I mean, they're so dependent on mum. So would you think that was another reason why you thought, well, is there, you know, how much could I actually 
help minute by minute, I've got to go, you know, and do and support the family in, in a bigger way by putting bread on the table. Do you think that came into play at all? Yeah, definitely. I think there was a sense of that. And, and um, we sort of really kind of followed an attachment model anyway. And so like for a lot of the time, you know, Luca was sort of really attached to, to Sarah, you know, day in, day out, hour after hour. And mm. And, you know, while I would take uh, take moments and time to, to sort of give her a rest and, and, and you know, have some time with him, um, there was probably a sense of just not knowing what my place was and, and maybe, like you say, that provider role kind of kicked in, in in lieu of not really knowing that, that kind of sense of displacement, um, not in a negative way but just like not, mm-hmm. not kind of sure, what, you know, where, where my place was in some ways. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So did what did that look like for you in reality? Did that, did that mean, for example, you know, working harder, working longer hours, you know, just being out more because you felt that was the best place for you to be or? Yeah, I think there was. So there, there was a sort of sense of really, uh, I was working for myself at the time. So I was sort of probably extending the hours and, and really trying to put in because obviously each hour that I worked was more money coming in. And so I, I probably um, latched onto that a little bit too much and 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 put spent far too much time sort of uh, working. Um, and, and I think um, there was other aspects around that. So not going out necessarily, but like putting in around the community as well. Like, so I, I was a volunteer with the state emergency service at the time as well. And something kind of clicked there too. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, I, I felt like part of this role of being protector or whatever was to go out and make the community safe. And so I kind of dived into that role and probably put mm-hmm. more hours into that too. Um, that uh, I mm-hmm. felt at the time was what was serving everyone best, but um, probably realised at some point that it wasn't. Mm, was there a, a moment or, a you know, a build-up of moments where you sort of started realising actually the way I'm going about things probably isn't serving my family in the best way? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I had a, a moment of realisation um, that, that my wife w- was really struggling and and really struggling kind of emotionally mentally um yeah with the with the load of of being a new mother and and um doing it for the first time and and not really having a, a large uh community of support around us and i think i had this sort of realization that something wasn't right and then i felt like yeah, there was almost like a wake up call. It was like, you know, you need to be here. It was, I got this real sort of deep intuitive sense that this is where I, I need to be and spend, spend more time. Um, and so that kind of switched mm-hmm. and I, I made the, the, the sort of the really positive decision to sort of step down from, um, the, the, the volunteer role that I was doing and just really sort of try and put some boundaries around my, my working hours as well. Mm, what did you notice? And, and I, and I asked that because, you know, for the, the dads listening, um, you know, what are the things that you picked up on that you sort of started going, okay, I don't feel like my partner, um, you know, is, is at her best now. She needs me more. And I shouldn't say even for the dads listening, there's a lot of single sex couples out there too. So for all the partners listening, what can they be looking out for? I think there was some small things initially and then then there was probably one thing that stands out at the moment is um you know coming home from work a little bit late one one winters in the evening and realizing that um that my wife hadn't really gotten out of it changed her, her sort of outfit that she'd been in like so she was still in her pajamas in the same mm-hmm. sorts of position that she was when when I'd left and 
there was just probably a um a, a lack of liveliness and and brightness in in her that was not normal to you know how she is on a usual daily basis i think and um so there was definitely a mood sort of change but also just like a sense that um she hadn't been able to do anything else that day uh, other than just really just sort of care for luca and I think what's interesting is there tends to be like, I just think of the first year of being a parent and you just feel like you're in a bit of a haze and it's the lack of sleep and it's the new, you know, your physical, the physical load of having this little one and your body changing as a female, but just everything is new, the mental load and all of that. What was, I mean, how could you tell that it was more than just fatigue on her part and on both of your parts and you, that there was actually something you needed to shift? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one to answer only because it, it was like a knowing in some ways, I think. It, it, it wasn't necessarily um, any one thing because, like you say, like there was that kind of rationalisation or, or logical kind of part of me that was going you know, like putting all those things, the things in the equation, we, we, this is the first time we've done this. Uh, we don't quite know what to expect. Of course, there's going to be that exhaustion. Of course, there's going to be the sleep deprivation and, and all those things. And so not really knowing what was normal and what was not, you know, because we had no experience to compare against. And so f- for me, it was sort mm-hmm. of like, it was a constant kind of battle or a question as to, is this, is this right or is this not right? And I think there was sort of one mm. one particular sort of day or or night. Or I think when there was a sense that um, even holding him in her arms, I could sense sort of a sadness or 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 like a um, mm. yeah, I guess just a, a, a not a yeah maybe a grief that was hard to kind of pinpoint why um, that didn't feel right. You know, I think when, so when I talk about that intuitive sense or that Mm. knowing, it was like, that's, that's not right. That doesn't feel right. You know, I felt that deeply Mm. within. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So then you dialed back on your community involvement and you focused more on, on the business and, you know, didn't go hell for leather on the business. What, what, what did that look like for you, the shift? Yeah. So like, um, I, I live in sort of country Victoria and, and I was kind of commuting a little bit with the work back and forth to Melbourne. And so I, I really sort of restricted my days on, on heading down to Melbourne and, and kind of rationalized the business in terms of looking for more work sort of locally and, and smaller jobs that I could, um, manage, you, you know, in a smaller time frame and not, not have to get so invested in, um, it was sort of like a, a, a computer mm. programming kind of business that I was in or software development that I was in. So it was sort of really just, mm. I guess, re-engineered things to make it more suit the lifestyle that I was in at that time. Mm. What are you noticing? I mean, you work with um, young boys through the work with the Man Cave, for example. Um, the feedback that they give you around, um, I guess, family dynamics, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned earlier that you felt really drawn to, to working in the early days because you felt as though that's where you could play, you know, have the most benefit to the family unit. Um, I'm sure that's, you know, a lot of people feel that way as well. Um, and there's so many examples of 
that of one parent being a bit more absent, um, et cetera. Do you get any feedback from the young boys that you, um, you work with a- around that and around the support that they feel from either parent? Um, I'm just curious. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, some of the anecdotal stuff that would, would come back or some of the things that I've heard are, um, boys saying, uh, just sort of like off offhand remarks, like "Oh, yeah, Dad works a lot," you know, like and 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 those kinds of like they don't have a lot of language for it. You know, we're talking sort of thirteen to fifteen year olds, and and um, you kind of probe a little bit deeper, and 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 it quite often just melts my heart sometimes when they all come out with a comment like, "I just want more time with him. I just want to spend more time with my dad. I want him around more." Um, and, and part of the work that I do also is, is run some, um, some camps that are like father son camps and, and, you know, quite often on those, it's, it, it, the comment is really like, this is about trying to connect, you know, with my son that's coming from the dads. And then the boys are like, yeah, like things are going pretty well with dad. We've got a reasonably good relationship, but I just want more of him. I just want more time with him. And I think boys, boys do really want that. They want want that sense uh of their their father in their life in some ways and and i know that that's not always possible for some kids as well um but those that do have fathers Mm. there's quite often a sense of just wanting more time with them Mm. so what sort of maybe guidance and support do you provide around sort of i mean as you said not everyone has the luxury firstly of you know even having a father or you know maybe their dad has to work for the long hours but are there any sort of tips or guidance that you provide to the dads with when they are around what they can be doing to enforce that connection yeah, I, I think that the the first one is really uh, how can you carve out some regular one on one time, and and almost like have a focus for the, for that. And so if that's just like walking the dog once a week, mm-hmm. or um, you know, getting in the kitchen and cooking dinner together one night a week, or um, you know, going going to the footy, or you know, go, you know, doing just something together one on one, even if there's other siblings, is a really important part for teenagers. I find you know so. Teenagers in particular mm-hmm. or, and boys in particular are really searching for who they are and they take their lead from those that are around them and, and the role models that they have. And so, you know, if their father, mm-hmm. you know, isn't in their life a lot or they're only sort of seeing, you know, one side of them, like that dynamic worker-provider kind of mode and, and you know, or they're, they're busy, you know, working for us but, like, you know, that that's what you do as, as sort of a dad. Um that's kind of the view or the vision that they have, you know, and then so the cycle will continue as they grow older. If they're able to mm-hmm. sort of see another side and see, you know, dads uh, having fun or doing different things and doing stuff with them um, gives them more, I guess, um, exposure to the different forms of healthy masculinity that are out there and the different ways that men can show up mm-hmm. um, because teenagers are trying to find their identity. They're trying to find who they are. Um, you know, and they look to those that are above them, whether it be older brothers, cousins, you know, sports coaches, music teachers, um, you know, other people within their lives. Mm-hmm. They're looking at those cues and making a decision for themselves. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to be like or no, nah, I don't want to be like that. And the more um, 
I guess, mm. exposure to different forms of healthy masculinity that they have, uh, the broader their view of, uh, you know, what they possibly can become is. And, and they can certainly choose more powerfully uh, the things that resonate mostly with them. Mm, you've mentioned healthy masculinity. Talk to me about that. Uh, so, uh, I mean, at the man cave, and, and this is certainly my personal view also, that uh, I feel that there are uh, many different forms of healthy masculinities, you know, so that's sort of almost like plural. And and what that looks like to me is, um, you know, someone, you know, boys and men quite often like the banter. They might like the sport, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's completely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's one form of, of masculinity as long as it's, uh, the banter's not sort of turning into bullying and, and teasing and sort of, you know, those sort of more maladaptive kind of means. Uh, there's a sense of fun and play in that that is, that is, you know, a beautiful thing that is within the masculine. Um, but then there's also the, the, the ability to actually share vulnerably and authentically what's actually going on for you. Um, you know, that sense of, of actually being able to say to your mates, hey, I'm actually struggling at the moment. Um, you know, I need some help or, you know, can, hey, can we talk about this? I know it's not something we normally talk about, but, but can we at least have uh, a conversation because this is something that I need need some support with? That to me is another form of masculinity that is, that is a healthy masculinity. Um, and then there is all forms of different masculinity as well with, you know, the, the, um, the binary and non-gendered space at the moment as well. There, there is still a sense of masculinity within all of that. And I think. Um, what I'm sort of seeing is that sense of, you know, the masculine and the feminine working together as being in a really important thing um, in, in all of us and because we all have those two sort of sides and two aspects to us. And, and mm-hmm. so how can we integrate those more fully? Mm. And I guess through the, the programs and the camps and things like that, you're, you're really trying to bring this to life with, with the boys and their fathers. Is that correct? So, the, I mean, there's, there's probably two separate things. So the Man Cave, we generally um, work with teenage boys, just, just teenage boys in school systems. And, and what we're really wanting to do there is create a platform or a space for them to feel safe enough to, to explore these tools of being able to share what's going on for them and, and help-seeking behaviour and, and, and those mm-hmm. uh, sorts of aspects where we're giving them a language and, and an experience um, and therefore confidence in, to be able to use those sorts of things. The father and son camp work that I, I do is sort of outside mm-hmm. of the man cave. You know, it's more in the, in the rites of passage, passage space. And, and that is sort of really probably for just that little bit older than what, you know, we work with the man cave traditionally sort of around that kind of um, 15 to 16-year-old sort of age group. Um, and that is really around providing an opportunity for the boys and the men to connect with each other. And, and so it's like facilitating an experience where they can come together and actually find some of that deep connection and actually try and make some commitments and actions mm-hmm. to, to be together and, and do some stuff one-on-one together. It's also a chance for them to clear stuff that's not working. You know, we have a process that we run quite often uh, with men and boys and, and sort of say, hey, what's not working in your relationship? What would you like to request of dad that you want to change? And, and then dad equally asking, you know, mm. the boy, you know, this is something that I'd like to see change too. And there has to be a shift in that relationship mm. too, both with mothers and sons and fathers and sons. There, there's a shift from, you know, we completely look after you or you're completely dependent upon us to now we're starting to move into this territory where 
you need to show us that you can start to look after yourself. And it's like preparing those life skills, that ability to, you know, look after mm. self and then start to contribute to others and be in service to others as well. Yeah. Talking about the, the cha- you know, bringing up the challenges that might exist between father and son, are there any I'm just curious, like you mentioned that one of the main ones is around, you know, for example, dad, you work too much. I don't see enough of you. Is there anything else that comes to mind? And I ask because good for us as parents, particularly our communities more with younger children, but certainly the teenage years are such a mystery to me. And if I can get any hot tips on, on, you know, the things that, you know, just to look out for and be mindful of as I parent um, in my day to day, you know, I'd love to know. So is there anything else that comes to mind around the feedback? that these adolescent boys are giving their their dads? I think there's a, probably a point in there uh, that, that sort of springs to mind immediately when you say that is is that there, there's an understanding that I have from seeing what I've seen and, and, and experienced what I've experienced with the work that I do. And, and it really, like I, I was told this, but then I've really sort of seen it from an experiential sense. And, and that is that boys in particular don't like being told what to do. They just don't like being told what to do. And so as parents, we have to find other ways to help, you know, come along the journey with them. There's things that we want them to do. There's things that we want them to engage in. You know, there's ways that we want them to, to you know, interact with us. But when they're constantly told to do stuff and they're not given almost like the um, the empowerment to, to step into that, um, that's when they start to resist and they start to sort of, you know, push back and, and push those boundaries a little bit more. And so what we often find is that by um, sharing our own experiences of what it was like when we were their age, it gives them a view of um, uh, a different way of perhaps approaching things or learning from perhaps our experiences and then they can take, what they want from that conversation and then they can embed it in a different way. Also like just, you know, stories and myths and and stories from other men or other people within their lives, whether it be, you know, grandfathers or the like, you know, there's a sense of stories are a a way of transmitting information and wisdom without telling them what to do. And and, and what I find is that boys Mm. take those messages on in a lot more positive fashion when they're not being told what to do, but they're they're taking what they think is the message of that story, or or what resonates with them, because again, as they try and formulate their identity, mm. they're 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 starting to critically analyze things. They're starting to go, yeah, that kind of rings true, or nah, that I don't believe that, you know, and that that's where they're starting to shape their independence and who they actually are as a person. And mm. I think it's really important to. Mm you know, give them different experiences and, and also to share our own experiences with them. It, it serves a couple of purposes. One, it normalises it. And, and like to, I've had teenage boys who have, you know, heard stories from their dad or from other men and go, I never thought of you as my age. I just thought you were always old. You know, like there's that sense mm. of, you know, you know like, uh, you know, I just yeah. thought you were always just, I, I can't even think of you as my age, you know, and going through this sort of stuff. So by sharing our own experiences, what Mm. it does is normalises it for them and goes, oh, that's right, dad was a teenager too once. Mum was a teenager once before, you know, 
It's so true, isn't it? And I think um, uh, talking about pushback by being told what to do, that is so me. <laughs> as a teenager, I feel like I hit it quite well, but as soon as you know, I had the very strict parents, so as soon as I could get out that door, it was like I was always living life you know, on the edge because I felt like you know, I was going against you know, all that was expected of me. Um, so I you know, hit the part, loved to party and loved you know, was always the, the loudest one dancing on tables at parties. It was always a little mm. bit extra crazy that was the dial tone was turned right up just because um I felt like everything I was doing was living on the edge and um funnily enough my sisters I've got two younger sisters um and my parents were a lot more sort of chill with them I guess they had me as the eldest that sort of you know so they let them do whatever they you know just Mm. like very chill get home from the party when you want and have a phone when you're little I don't care Mm. and they funnily enough were a lot more kind of um, like responsible. And even now it's a bit of a family joke, like, oh, Leonie's the wild one. Like, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's interesting, isn't it? And I think it speaks a little bit to what you're saying around if you say no, and if you say, you know, if you come down too hard, then you, you're in danger of that child or, you know, adolescent going the other way. I mean, do you, do you see a lot of that too? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the, 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 I guess the link that we make there and, um, you know, try and assist parents with the idea that um, linking um, linking kind of consequences to responsibility, you know. So what I mean by that is um, like giving further responsibility uh, is something that they're seeking. You know, young people are seeking to kind of be seen as adults, to not be you know looked at as a kid anymore. And so mm-hmm. how can we give them more responsibility? Mm-hmm. But... The flip side is linking that to, well, there's consequences if I don't follow through. If I don't have the integrity and and actually live into that responsibility, well, then, you know, that responsibility is going to be taken away. Or, you know, that sense of um, that personal freedom, you know, is, is going to be taken away as well. And so rather than it being sort of punishment and reward, it's more like bringing in that sense of extra kind of responsibility, but there's a consequence if you don't live up to that. If you don't meet that responsibility, so I hear you. So an example to bring it to life, and I think technology is just a beast that we haven't even delved into yet. But obviously, it was no we're near as prevalent in our age, <laughs> day and age, than um, as teenagers as it is today. So let's talk about that. So let's just say, for example, teenager. You know, I'm noticing they're playing, you know, video games for too long. It's driving me nuts. They're not doing their homework, and it's been, you know, and I come down on them. And, uh, but I know that our relationship is, you know, being jeopardized because, you know, I'm the disciplinarian and they're just thinking that I'm just trying to, you know, ruin their lives because they can't play video games, for example. So what guidance would you say based on that, you know, that principle that you articulated earlier, what should I be doing as a parent? Yeah. Technology is such a big one. And, and, and it is, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting not to segue too much or, or digress too much, but, Technology is um, so important for young people, and I think as as an older person, I didn't grow up with it, and so it, I'm not a digital native, and so it's hard for me to understand um, what it's like living in a world where it's just part of you, it's part of life. It, it, there's not an online world and an offline world. It's it's like it's all mushed together, mm. and so one of the things that comes out mm. from teenage boys in particular is that. We, we did a study back in uh, 2020. We, we just surveyed a bunch of the boys that we were working with. And, and one of the questions was, 
um, what do you want your parents to chill about? And the biggest thing was like technology. And then when we delve deeper into the so the qualitative aspect, it was like boys saying things like, that's where I connect. That's where I connect with my friends. That's where my friends are. That's how I am actually able to socialize. That is my world. So I want you to chill about that. I, I, I don't want you to stop me from being with my friends. So to your point, the, the, the question you asked is, well, how can you put limits and boundaries upon it in such a way that they're having some voice in that? You know, so like asking the question, okay, so I, I've got a problem with you being on the device for, you know, hours on end. How can we kind of reach a compromise on this? You know, what, what could be a, a, an acceptable limit that we both agree to? And so there's sort of maybe a bit of back and forth in terms of, okay, let's decide an hour a day is, you know, or, or 45 minutes at a time or, or whatever that thing might be. And then it's about sort of saying, well, I, I back you and I trust you to honour this. But what do you think should be the consequence if you don't follow through on this? If you start to extend that to like an hour and a half, two hours, if you don't, you know, if we're making this agreement and drawing this line in the sand now, what do you think the consequence should be? And then again, empowering them to kind of almost like have some voice and, and, and have the ability to actually try and come up with something that's reasonable that you can accept as a parent. Now, perhaps they won't, mm -hmm. perhaps they won't come up with something that's acceptable, but this is where it's give and take. This is where the, the workable compromise comes into it. How, how can we find that workable compromise that's going to work for both us and to them? Because we're moving into a relationship of mm. power with rather than power over. And how, how can we work with them mm. rather than pushing against them? Because power, power relationships and power dynamics never work. You know, they always end up in someone feeling angry, resentful, upset, whatever. Like, you know, whether that's us mm -hmm. as parents or whether that's our, our mm. child as a broody teenager. So how can we find that workable compromise mm. where we're at least, okay, we're not 100% happy, but we're not upset and we've got something that can work. And mm -hmm. once you've got that agreement and that line in sand, well, then, you know, then that can be negotiated over time. Like, okay, you've proven yourself for the last month. You know, how about we extend it by another 15 minutes or, you know, another half an hour or something? Or what do you think would be reasonable mm -hmm. to extend it by? So that's, I guess, what I'm trying to, like, does that mm -hmm. kind of illustrate it for you in terms of, you know, how I see it? That really does. Curious around, um, let's delve into technology a little bit. As um, So you were talking about earlier, and I never thought about this it, that, this way either, but that their world and their whole connection and community, a lot of it is online or, you know, um, through the devices or whatever it looks like. How are parents navigating this beast of the of a thing like technology, even down to like YouTube, right? Like I know you could put your, you know, your locks on YouTube and this and that, but there's only so much you can control around what they're seeing and where they're spending their time. I don't know, does this come up a lot in the work that you're doing? Yeah, definitely. I, I think like from the from the teenage perspective, I guess what I what I've sort of learnt and heard is is that um like I said before, this is part of our world, this is part of how we interact, this is part of who we are. It's part of our identity, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so for me, logically what uh that brings up for me is like, well, as a parent, how can I remain connected to that? How can I be the student in this relationship? How can I get them to help sort of teach mm -hmm. or inform me about that world so I can understand, so I can have a sort of a dialogue? 
Um, you know, how can I be curious about mm-hmm. it? And that actually gives them the ability to be empowered to kind of be in that teacher role and actually teach us something about what's, mm-hmm. what, what, you know, the, their world is about. Because ultimately whether there, there mm-hmm. may be resistance there, and, you know, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but uh, there may be resistance there, but like mm-hmm. generally people, humans, um, but teenagers in particular, you know, want to be able to share their world. They, they want to be able to be understood. And so if you can find an in uh, in some way, shape or form, just by sort of saying, hey, can you show me what this is all about? Or, you know, I, I'm, having this, I'm having trouble with this app on my phone. Can you, you know, work it out and then, you know, help teach me or something like that? There's, there's a, almost mm-hmm. like a humbleness or a humility there that enables them to feel that sense of like equalization and that sense of power and, and bringing, mm. you know, mm. their gifts to the fray in some ways in, and showing that they know something that you don't. Mm. And, and there's something in that for them in mm. terms of feeling a sense of accomplishment and, and you know, mastery on something, um, whereas previously they probably looked to the parents as having all the answers or knowing everything. You know, I'm, I'm still in that in this wonderful yeah. stage of of you know you know my son kind of thinking I'm a superhero in some ways and I know that's going to change like I, <laughs> I, I've just I've just seen it happen mm. you know so many times and it mm. will come and I and I guess I'm part of me is trying to um just you know capture each moment that I have now like if he still holds my hand or gives me a hug or all those sorts of things like cherish those moments because I know there's going to come a time when he's going to mm. want to kind of pull away a bit um and there's going to be something that I'm going to potentially do that sort of, you know, offends him or, or wounds him in some way. And, and I'm cognizant of that. And I have no control over that necessarily. That, that, that as best that we can mm. do as parents, I really think that with the best intentions, even sometimes we don't get it right. And, and you know, that's, mm. that, that's the thing of letting go of perfection in some ways, you know. We, we have to allow ourselves, mm. you know, the sense that we can't always get it right. Mm, yeah, 100%. We're only human. Um, I think it would be remiss of me talking about technology to not talk about this is one of my not greatest fears, but it's something that it's in the back of my head. So I've got two little boys and pornography is such a problem, at least from what I've heard and what I've read, um, particularly in the teenage years. And again, you can put all the locks on your computer and YouTube, et cetera, but ultimately you're not with your kid 24 seven. They could be at so-and-so's house and watching whatever they want. So does that come up in the work that you do and any tips on sort of navigating that? Like that's a beast. Yeah. Look, it's a huge topic. And, and I think for me, what, what, immediately comes to mind when you when you ask about that is um how can you have conversations about it you know um someone someone quoted to me once uh, someone famous who sort of said um you you can't hate someone whose story you know and so there's a sense of like if if you can explore the idea and actually have conversations about what's going on then that that fear and, and, and necessarily perhaps um, that need to restrict everything, uh, you know, if it's more transparent and more open in terms of the conversations that you're having, then it, then it doesn't become such a big deal. It doesn't become something that needs to be hidden so much. 
Um, and uh, like we've all been there, you know, in terms of uh, being teenagers and going through the the cycle of hormones and, and what's happening for us and, and interested in others and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, I think there's real uh, merit in, in actually being able to have the conversations as early as we can. Um, just around, you know, normalizing the feelings and all those sorts of things. And they're uncomfortable conversations. This is the thing. And and as parents, I think sometimes <laughs> we don't feel equipped for them. I'm certainly nervous about, you know, having these conversations with my own boy at the moment. And we've started to have little conversations, you know, and about some changes that might be happening and all that sort of stuff. And getting a sort of a real guide or a sense from him as to what he's comfortable talking about and what he's not. But trying to remain keep those connections or conversations open enough, um, mm. you know, the, the, and, and asking questions with curiosity, you know, and, and rather than judgment and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, look, all these things are easy to say, but, mm. you know, in, in practice, you know, being a parent is hard, mm. you know, it is it is difficult. Oh. And, and we, we do try and get yeah. it right all the time and we're going to get some things wrong and, and you know, we, we're all going to have mm. a different experience too. Um, so I guess like for me, it's about how can, how can we use our community to support us and how can we continue to have conversations? Mm. Um, that would be the two things that would mm. really be important in my mind around, you know, pornography, sex, mm. any of those sort of, you know, those topics. Yeah, and I think it's so true what you're saying around as soon as you uh, don't talk about something and it becomes taboo, then it gives the other person the opportunity to feel like, you know, they're sitting in a dark corner doing something naughty, i.e. like I, you know, I used to, you know, you go the other extreme because you feel as though, you know, you're living on the edge. So, uh, I mean, it's it's been such a rich conversation with you, Joel, and I mean, some of the takeaways for me have been massively sort of handing that power back a bit, particularly in the teenage years and, and enabling them to have a bit of a say in the conversation and the decisions that are being made. Um, that's absolutely key. Um, so yeah, lo- lots to think about. I want to hear from you circling back to your fatherhood journey. I ask every guest this. So how has fatherhood changed you as a person? Oh, great question. Um, I think the biggest thing is it has enabled me to really um, increase my own self-awareness and take further responsibility for my behaviour and really sort of look at perhaps, you know, some of the shadow aspects of myself that, that maybe I've been kind of hidden in, in the corner, as, as you sort of said before, and, and really look at those and sort of see, well, how am I showing up and how do I want to actually be showing up? So it's enabled me, you know, it's been the greatest teaching experience, I think, you know, if, if I were to say, you know, put it into words in some mm-hmm. ways, I think it's been the, the greatest teacher has been that sense of uh, who, who do I want to be? And, and, you know, if I'm not living into that, then what changes do I need to make? 
Mm, yeah, I can so relate. Um, tell us a little bit about how people can find out more about you and your work. And I'm already ready to sign up for when my kids are, my, my kids are the teenage years. I'm like, yes, we need to do the camp. We need, I'm like, any support in this, as you said, community is everything. So to be able to come to a camp, like, you know, the ones that you run and to be able to have dad and son there and to break through some barriers and to be vulnerable together, you know, and have that healthy masculinity. I mean, I just think it's absolutely fantastic what you're doing and definitely up my alley. But yes, tell us how more people can find out about you and your work. Yeah, thanks. So uh, the, the main role I have is is at The Man Cave and, and you can find out more about us at uh, themancave.life. Uh, that's our, our web address, themancave.life. Um, I've also, I, I host a podcast for The Man Cave called Inside the Cave, which you can find on all uh, podcast sort of channels. And that sort of gives you a, a bit more of an essence as to what's behind the work of, of The Man Cave. Um, the Rites of Passage camps, father and son camps, I, um, I do some work for Dr. Anna Rubenstein at the Rites of Passage Institute. Um, and yeah, well worth having a look at, at what uh, they have to offer because it's, it's truly life-changing kind of work. And personally, I do, uh, do mentoring of young people and, and uh, facilitate experiences around human connection and belonging uh, through my business called Being Human, and that's at beinghuman.net.au. Fantastic. I'll pop all of those details in the episode notes. Joel, thank you so much again for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity and, and just really want to acknowledge you and the and the, the deep, thoughtful questions that you ask and, and the work that you're doing, um, you know, because I can really see that lots of parents will benefit from just hearing conversations, um, uh, you know, around all these topics. Uh, and it helps, I think, from my mm-hmm. perspective, normalise uh, a lot of the experience of being a parent, which, you know, as we've established today, is, is a hard job, um, but there is so much mm-hmm. uh, joy and beautiful stuff that comes out of it as well. I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. Want to be part of the Parenthood community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at Parenthood Pod. Now I'll let you get back to the organised chaos. Until next time.